Hi, good morning and welcome. This is uh, day two of the Global Gospel Awareness uh, Conference. Um, and it's been already a huge blessing to have the Granberries with us. Um, yesterday at lunch, hearing their story about how God called them to the Yakima Indian Reservation in Washington, um, and the story of how uh, he worked through them as they serve uh, people of the First Nation and what uh, they have learned um, there. So uh, let's now give a warm Scots welcome for day two, uh, Pastor Chris Granberry. All right, it's uh, great to be with you again today. Uh, we're really excited to be here uh, on campus and to, to meet so many of you and get to spend some time together. Uh, before we get into the talk for today, I've got a couple of quick uh, announcements I need to remember right off the front end here. Uh, tonight at 7 o'clock, we're going to have a gathering at the Overlook. Uh, we're going to have free pizza and coke and pepsi and pop soda whatever you call it around here and uh so we'll have pepsi and and dinner and stuff at seven o'clock at the overlook but we're probably going to move into brock hall somewhere and we're trying to confirm uh, which room we'll be using so if you're interested in learning more about the reservation if you have questions about anything from racial reconciliation or reconciliation between the church and native america our summer internships um which are paid by the way and uh, let's see what else. You could come in the spring. There's all kind of uh, things that you might be interested in. We'd love to meet with you then and talk. Uh, we're, and we're doing that tonight at 7 and tomorrow at 7. Tonight is going to be pizza, and then tomorrow is going to be ice cream. It's going to be like a build-your-own ice cream Sunday thing. You could tell I used to be a youth pastor, right? So, but uh, yeah, please come. It's all free, and we would love to spend time with you. We know you're busy, and you're running back and forth, and you're studying, and you're going to class. And you may want to learn more, so we're trying to just give you some opportunities to do that. So feel free to come and bring friends, you know. Uh, it's free food, free ice cream, whatever, that's fine. So um, also, we'll be at the Great Hall today after chapel. Um, my wife and I both will be there. Um, I don't know how you're going to find me, I guess. No, I'm just kidding. It's this shirt. Look for this shirt, so you'll see me. Um, so the next thing you're wondering, what the heck's going on with that shirt? Where do I get one? And uh, this is a ribbon shirt. Uh, and I'm dressed today uh, the way a Native man would dress uh, to go to uh, a gathering like a traditional feast or a funeral or a wedding. Um, yeah, a funeral even. Uh, you don't necessarily wear black at a funeral on the res. Um, so this is a traditional dress for a Native, Native man. So that's why I'm wearing this. All right. Well, a few thoughts that we want to hang on to from yesterday as we move into today's talk. Um, one of the things I mentioned yesterday is there's a lot of controversy when you think about Native America, when you think about ministry in Native America, when you think about history between, we're going to talk some more about that tomorrow, history between the church and Native America, between the United States and Native America, between everybody else in Native America. <laughs> there's a lot of controversy. Um, you'll hear words, you'll hear things about syncretism, Right? And you hear things about casinos and things about entitlement mentalities and all these different things. There's all kind of controversy. And that was something that was a, kind of an obstacle for us on the, on the front end as we moved toward the reservation uh, is we were kind of distracted by all the controversial topics. And when we would visit churches and colleges and seminaries, a lot of times people wanted to uh, ask questions about those controversial things. 
And that's fine. We can try to sort through it. Um, some of it, you just go in a great big circle and wind up right back where you started. Some of it, you can't seem to get to the end of it. So I started asking, well, what are the non-controversial facts? Like, what do we really know as believers who want to love our first neighbors well? What are the non-controversial facts? And I came up with three things that have really stuck with me over the years. Um, and honestly, t- yesterday, today, tomorrow, I'm really just kind of trying to share with you some of the stuff that has helped us as we try to love our neighbors um, and reach out to Native America. So it's kind of just a collection of those thoughts and verses and dynamics, I think. But three non-controversial facts that I hope you can hang on to. One thing that nobody argues about is that Jesus calls us to love our neighbors, right? I think even atheists believe that. It doesn't matter what denomination you're involved in or what church you go to. Like, everybody believes Jesus told his followers to love their neighbors, right? I don't think anybody argues about that, okay? So that's number one. Number two, the first neighbors of the American church were Native Americans, right? Go back to the colonies, go back, way back, however far back you want to go. The, the first believers, whoever they were, and there were a lot of people that said they were believers that came to America that maybe weren't, but whoever the first believers were that came to America, their first neighbors were Native Americans, right? So we have about 500 years of history, give or take. If you want to go 400, that's fine. So there's, there's all this history, hundreds of years of opportunity for the church in America to love our first neighbors well, and that's what we're called to do. Um, that's not controversial, right? I think we can agree on that. The third non-controversial fact is there are about 3 million American Indians in the United States today and only somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 to 3% claim to be Christian. Okay, so three facts. So something that's obvious when you put those together is there's been a huge breakdown between the American church and Native America. And something else I think that's not controversial, it's on us as God's people to figure out how to bridge that gap. And it's time It's time. (laughs) It's long overdue, right? We need to figure out how to love our first neighbors well. Um, So that's really what we're focused on today and uh, this week. Isaiah 58, we looked at that yesterday. Isaiah 58, verses 6 through 12. That's kind of a cornerstone passage. Uh, The Lord really used Isaiah 58 when he was calling me and my family to move to the reservation in the first place. Um, the best word I've ever come up with is haunted. <laughs> I feel like I was haunted by Isaiah 58 uh, for about a year and a half. Um, and I tried to forget about Isaiah 58 for about a year and a half, but the Lord wouldn't let me. And now I treasure Isaiah 58 because there have been so many times where we didn't know what to do next on the reservation. Uh, when you reach out to your neighbors and you really begin to love them, and engage with them, there's going to be times where you don't know what to do or say. Um, But Isaiah 58 has those promises where the Lord says, I will guide you always. And there's going to be times where you feel so weak that you just feel like you can't take another step. But Isaiah 58, the Lord says, I will strengthen your frame. And uh, he promises to, to be with you in the midst of the struggle to truly love your neighbors. Uh, whoever they happen to be. And uh, two of the things I really want to hang on to today from Isaiah 58, God says to his people, don't turn your back 
on your own flesh and blood. And I think that's so critical for the American church today, for us to embrace that. We cannot turn our back on our first neighbors. It's, it's going to be hard. It's going to be expensive. It's going to take a long time. Um, <laughs> it's going to be really difficult to love our first neighbors well. But we cannot turn our back on our own flesh and blood. Right? Instead, Isaiah 58 says, instead of turning your back on your own flesh and blood, spend yourself. Not just spend your money, not just spend your time, spend it all. Take everything you have, everything you are, everything the Lord's given you, ball it all up together and invest it in loving your neighbors well. What does that look like? How do you go about it? That's all great. That's what, that's what we need to be asking. That's, and what does that look like for you? What it looks like for you is different than what it looks like for me and my wife and my kids and the folks that are on staff with us on the res. But there is an answer to that question. So we need to be asking that question. What does it look like for me to spend myself, some translations say, pour yourself out for your neighbors? Um, and when it's talking about your neighbors in Isaiah 58, it says, for the afflicted. For the afflicted. Raise your hand if you like hanging out with the afflicted. Anybody like hanging out with the afflicted? <laughs> you do? Good. A lot of folks don't, right? <laughs> There's a lot of reasons not to hang out with people that are afflicted, right? Um, it's hard. It can be really, really hard to hang out with the afflicted. But that's exactly what Jesus did. That's exactly what he does now. And that's our story. Why would we do this? Because when we were afflicted, when we were slaves to sin, Ephesians 2 says, objects of wrath, Jesus came for us, he came to us, and he did way more than hang out with us, didn't he? He poured himself, Isaiah 58 says, pour yourself out, spend yourself. Isn't that exactly what Jesus has done for you and me? When we were afflicted more than we could ever comprehend, Jesus came and he literally poured out his blood so that we could be healed, so that we could be brought into God's family. There's the motivation. When Jesus says, love your neighbors, first of all, he's not joking around. Secondly, he knows exactly what he's talking about. And he's also saying, don't forget where you were. Don't forget where you would be if I hadn't come for you, right? That's what we, it's, it's imperative we remember that as we move toward our neighbors. Here's a quote, Alistair Begg, you guys know Alistair Begg? I really like him. He's a uh, Scottish-American, I think, pastor in Ohio, and he said this, we will never go forward effectively until we learn to view the past properly. We will never go forward effectively until we learn to view the past properly. All right, so if we, we can talk about reconciliation all we want, but unless we view the past properly, if, unless we really know our history and have an accurate understanding of what's gone on in the past, we'll never move toward true reconciliation, right? And that's true with all cultures, all people groups. It's true certainly with Native America. But there's a problem. Looking back at the history, looking back at the past in order to see it properly is really painful. It's really painful. But if we want to reconcile the church to Native America, um, it has to be done. 
Mark Charles is a really powerful Christian speaker. Uh, he's a Native American believer. He's a lobbyist. Uh, he split his time. He lives in a little uh, hogan on the Navajo reservation uh, without power or electricity uh, or, or electricity or water a good bit of the time. Uh, but then some of his time spent in Washington, D.C. lobbying uh, for Native American issues. And he says this, being Native American and living in the United States feels like our indigenous peoples are an old grandmother who lives in a very large house. It's a beautiful house with plenty of rooms and comfortable furniture, but years ago some people came into our house and locked us upstairs in the bedroom. Today the house is full of people. They're sitting on our furniture, they're eating our food, they're having a party in our house. Since uh, They have since unlocked the door to our bedroom, but now it's much later and we're tired and we're old we're weak and we're sick, so we can't or don't come out. But the, but the part that is most hurtful and causes us the most pain is that virtually no one from the party ever comes upstairs to find us in our bedroom, sit down with us, look us in the eye, and simply say, thank you. Thank you for letting us be in your house. The first time I went to the reservation was in the summer of 2000. Um, I was a youth director in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, in Alabama, I had everything like I liked it. I had my life all organized and arranged uh, just like I liked it. I loved everything about the way my life was in Alabama, and I didn't want to change a thing. Um, and I didn't realize how committed I was to all that until later. But uh, I took my youth group to the reservation in uh, the summer of 2000. We were going for one week. And one of the things we did was we did Kids Club in the housing projects on the reservation. So a lot of you, when you hear housing projects, you think inner city, and that's good because it's very much like the inner city. Um, if you look at the statistics, though, it's way worse uh, on reservations and in these remote towns. So we were in a, a small town, a very remote part of the reservation, in a, a tribal housing project, very, very poor uh, area. Um, and so a lot of the same issues you'd find in the inner city, but we had a few extra issues like wild horses would wander through town uh, and wander into the housing project sometimes. That's how far out we were. One time a, a bear came to Kids Club, so we had to evacuate Kids Club because a bear showed up. Um, so a little different than the inner city, but a lot of the same issues. Um, I thought I knew what we were getting into because I had been to third world countries. I had been to really remote parts of Indonesia when I was 19, spent about two months in Indonesia and went to places where they actually really hadn't seen too many white people before. Um, I had been in the inner city DC, inner city Miami, Little Havana, Little Haiti, uh, Guatemala, different places. And so I thought I understood poverty. I thought I understood a lot of the things that were going on in the inner city. Um, but when we went to the reservation, I was uh, devastated by what we saw and heard. The stories, um, the situation that the children were in, in particular, um, it, it, it laid me low. And it made it really hard for me to get through that week and to leave my team. I was having a really hard time just functioning. And I had never experienced something like that before. Like, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for children that were suffering um, and I had felt a lot of compassion before and things like that, but this was different. 
uh, the level of hopelessness, the level of darkness, the level of despair that I saw in the eyes of the children. Uh, And not just one or two kids, but really all the kids that we were working with was completely overwhelming to me. I couldn't comprehend it. I could hardly put one foot in front of the other. And then to make things worse, uh, (laughs) I I remember sitting, uh, we were having kids club in an empty lot, basically, uh, and there was a concrete slab. I remember sitting on the slab with a child sitting next to me, and I think I was drawing, writing her name in sidewalk chalk on the slab, and I was trying to write it fancy, just like I would for my kids at that time. Uh, Beth was five at that time. My son David was two. Uh, Anne-Marie was about seven. Morgan would have been four, I think. And so they all stayed back in Alabama with my wife, Mary. But I was sitting there on that slab writing a kid's name in sidewalk chalk or drawing flowers or something. And out of the corner of my eye, um, I caught a glimpse of another kid. Uh, And this was about Wednesday, I think, when this first happened. And this has never happened before or since. But I saw a child out of the corner of my eye, and I thought it was David. Uh, And my heart leaped up because for a split second, I forgot David wasn't there. He was in Alabama. But this little guy was two years old. He looked a lot like David, just darker. Um, And so out of the corner of my eye, I saw this little guy. I thought it was David. And the impulse, because I was missing my wife and my kids so much, my impulse was just to scoop him up in my arms and give him a big hug. Because for a split second, I thought it was really David. And then I turned and I saw the little boy and I realized it's not David. Uh, And this little guy was in really bad shape. Um, He had a really bad case of lice. He had a green runny nose. Uh, It was obvious nobody was taking care of him. Uh, Every day that he came to kids club, he was hungry because nobody was giving him breakfast. Uh, all, All he ever wore was a diaper, no shoes, no shirt, no nothing. He needed a bath really bad. He always needed a new diaper really bad. Uh, He needed something to eat, and he was playing, running around with no shoes on, and there was broken glass and nails and stuff everywhere, and so I spun around and saw this little guy, and for a split second thought he was my son. 16 years ago, (laughs) still hard to talk about. That's how powerful it was. Um, For a split second, I looked at him as if he was my own little boy, as if he was my own flesh and blood like Isaiah 58 says. And it was like the Lord whispered in my ear, what would you do if that was David? You wouldn't just go back to Alabama where you have everything like you like it and forget about him. Like you would do something. You would take action. So it was like the Lord was saying, now technically he's not your child, but for all you know, he's my child. And he's created in my image. He's crowned with glory and honor. There is an appropriate response. And ignoring him is not it. Don't turn your back on your own flesh and blood. There was also, again, this had never happened to me before. It happened multiple times that week. And this is part of the reason I had a hard time functioning. (laughs) Never happened before, never happened since. But there was also a little girl, about five years old, looked a lot like Beth. Um, Beth had a little bob haircut back then, and this little girl did too. And I would see her out of the corner of my eye. Um, 
and I thought it was Beth. And my heart leaped up, and I wanted to scoop her up and give her a huge hug and just hold her. And I was right on the verge of doing it. That's how much I believed it was her. And I'd spin around and realize it's not Beth. It's this other little girl. And she was really, really skittish. Um, She was really, really nervous, especially around men. It was obvious that she had been abused, um, probably in multiple ways, and, and neglected. But for a split second, I looked at her as if she was my own little girl. And the Lord said, don't turn your back on your own flesh and blood. So what do you do? You know, what do you do with that? Uh, Mary's been reading a book. What's his name? Mark Garber? Steve Garber. I don't know who Mark Garber. I think he plays for the Dodgers. Um, Steve Garber. Uh, And he talks about the tension between knowledge and love. Right? The tension between knowledge and action. And I was caught squarely in those crosshairs right and I went back to Alabama and everything was just like I left it but nothing was the same right and I tried to forget I tried to forget about white swan I tried to forget about those kids I tried to forget the stories and the faces and the things I had learned and I couldn't forget Micah 6 8 says this he has shown you O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So some translations say do justice, do justice. Uh, When I was younger, I used to think, well, that's what lawyers and judges and police officers and all those people, politicians, that's what they're supposed to do, right? That's their job, justice. I'm just a regular guy. I'm not really in the business of justice. I don't know, you know, I'm not a lawyer, whatever. But the biblical definition of justice, uh, Tim Keller wrote a fantastic book on this. I would highly recommend it to you. It's called Generous Justice. It's about Micah 6.8. Really, really good book. Um, I think you could call it, he could have called it When Helping Helps. Um, But he says that the biblical view of justice is not a legal thing like a court like you'd find in courtrooms with lawyers and judges necessarily Um, the definition of justice and the playing out of justice among believers among the people of God is where one of us sees something around us in the world and we say that's not the way it's supposed to be that's not just that's not right okay it's not right for a two-year-old kid to be running around barefoot, virtually naked, in a filthy diaper that's six, eight hours old, with broken glass, nails, green runny nose, lice, hungry, that's not right. That's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not going to be like that in heaven. And so as a believer, I'm going to do whatever I can to change that situation. Something I used to really get hung up on is I can't adopt that kid. Like, I want to treat that kid as if he's my own kid. That little guy's name is Thomas. I want to love Thomas just like I love David. I can't. That's what I would say. I can't. I can't adopt him. can't bring him. Blah, 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 blah. And I'd have all these reasons why. 
okay? But the question is, can I love that kid right here, right now, the way a father would love a child? Right now. Maybe not in 10 years. Maybe not. Maybe. But let's forget about 10 years. Let's talk about right now, right this moment. Can I kind of, can I pick him up if he'll let me? Can I give him a hug? Can I play for an hour, you know? Can I make things right even for a moment? Can I give that little kid a taste of heaven maybe? Just at least for a moment. Maybe it'll be more than that. Maybe it won't be. But how about this? Can the Lord take one hour and turn it into something a whole lot more? He loves that. <laughs> he loves, to, that's the way everything started. He made everything out of nothing, right? He loves to do that. He loves to take small things, and, and usually somehow he breaks it. So a lot of times it looks like it's going all backwards and wrong to us because he'll take that small thing and break it and then multiply it, right? Can he do that with an hour? with one child can that moment make a difference in the kid's life of course he can of course he can it's like planting a seed all the results and all the way that everything plays out that's not all up to us we can't control that but the question is right now right this moment can i love my neighbor in some sort of way similar to the way jesus has loved me can i pour myself out can i get over the fact that this little guy has life can I, can I risk that? You know, maybe I'll get life. Maybe I'll get something else, scabies or who knows what. Can I get over that and love this kid in spite of that? Can I love this kid in spite of all the unknowns and the fact that I don't know what the future holds, in spite of the fact that it's probably going to hurt me later somehow? So justice, believers, the people of God looking around and saying, that right there, as far as I can tell, as far as I know, based on what I know from the Bible, that right there is not right. That's not the way things ought to be. It's not the way it's going to be in heaven. So I want to use whatever I have. Time, energy, resources, money, gifts, abilities, energy, whatever I have to attack that and change it. At least for a moment, if not longer, maybe longer. Love mercy. Um, when we know that we need mercy, we love it, right? When you're repenting and you're reminded of God's mercy through Scripture and you're like, that's true, I can really hang on to that, we love it. But do we love to extend mercy to somebody else that's hurt us? That's something we probably need to pray about. Lord, <laughs> I say I love mercy. I love it when I need it. I love it when you give it to me. Would you work in my heart in such a way that I love to give it maybe even more than I love to receive it? That would be a miracle, but it's possible. The Lord could do that. Walk humbly. Walking humbly with the Lord. If we're going to reconcile with anybody, we're going to have to walk humbly. Uh, for us as believers, um, most of the time, that means we really need to listen. We really, really need to listen. For sure, as non-Indians moving into Native America, we really, really, really need to listen. Listening is actually a ministry on the reservation. 
And you can hear it in Mark Charles's story, right? Nobody comes up to the bedroom where the old lady is to sit down and listen. And even just to simply say thank you, right? Nobody, nobody comes to her. Somebody asked a great question yesterday at lunch. They, they said, what, what does Native America want? What do they want us to understand? What do they want, maybe what do they want us to do? Um, I would say come and listen is probably the first step. Come and listen. It's critical. We'll never move forward effectively if we don't learn to view the past properly. We need to hear their side of the story. We need to understand the history, understand how we got to where we are today if we hope to move forward together in the future. Let's pray. Lord, some of this is really overwhelming. Uh, the whole idea of acting justly or doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly. It's one thing to think about it and talk about it when we're sitting here in a fairly comfortable place, but we know ourselves well enough to know that when we walk out the door and get uncomfortable, we stop thinking about these things and caring about these things but Lord we know that you are so powerful and you're so good and you're so loving that you can work these things into our lives we pray that we would be people whose lives are characterized by doing justice loving mercy and walking humbly with you we know that apart from you there's no way in the world that's going to happen but with you all things are possible so Lord, we offer ourselves to you and pray that you would use us however you see fit to bring reconciliation between the races, between the church and those who've been hurt by the church. Lord, we, we need to come together in your family and to love our neighbors the way that you've loved us. We pray that you would do that. In your name we pray, amen. Let's stand together. Praise God from whom all.